0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1013. It is Prospect Week at Fangraphs, so of course we start our episode with lead prospect analyst Eric Langenhagen, joined by contributor Tess Taruskin, to discuss their impressive work on the freshly dropped Top 100 Prospects list. Eric and Tess talk about what kind of music got them through Prospect Week, and how injury concern really puts a wrinkle on every ranking. The pair then walk through an exercise of how they would discuss a group of similar players for ranking on the prospect list. In this instance, focusing on relief risk pitchers. Finally, we hear about some favorite players on the list, like Addison Barger and Miguel Blaze, and how nowadays some of the best footage comes from the players' own TikTok accounts.
1: It's hard to get video of Miguel Blaise to, to back you up. I had to scour TikTok to find his personal TikTok account. <laughs> yes.
2: And that's, yeah. that's
1: you know, the, the day and age we're living in. But, you yes, know, it that, is. and there was some fun, like, Spanish language trap music going on in the background and, was, you know, editing tour de force.
3: It is funny because, you know, at one point you had to have like an Instagram burner to see what <laughs> these guys were doing because yeah. it's not like, oh, let's look at the social lives of Dominican teenagers. But it is like, no, they're putting, when they do something good, they tend to put it on there and you want to see right. what that looks like.
1: Right. I mean, I think they know the impact that it has too. Like they realize how hard it is for us to see what they're doing and they want us to see it. So I'm glad that we have access yeah, to like it in time. the way that he's giving it to us with the trap music.
0: After that, David Lorelau welcomes John Manuel, former editor-in-chief at Baseball America and current scout for the Minnesota Twins. David asks John how different prospect ranking lists look from inside of an org and how much teams actually care, and how much the world of prospect rankings has changed since he started years ago. John also reflects on his prospect evaluations of players like Felix Hernandez, Joe Maurer, Mookie Betts, Justin Verlander, Freddie Freeman, and more. Finally, John and David discuss the origins of prospect rankings and how Baseball America founder Alan Simpson deserves credit for doing it first very long ago.
4: I really do think Alan Simpson invented it. I don't know outside of Bill James, I can't think of another baseball writer who deserves more to be in the to get the Spink Award and be in the Baseball Hall of Fame in the Writers Wing than Alan Simpson. He was difficult to work with. <laughs> I worked with him for nine years, and we didn't always see eye to eye and we butted heads a lot, but he is a great guy, extremely well-intentioned and uh, Baseball America changed the way people see baseball because seeing the game through a scouting and player development perspective is something that a lot of fans do and a lot of writers have to do now and uh, that just wasn't the case before he started the magazine in his garage in 1981. I think he's criminally underrated.
0: But before we get to these great segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the place to get your official Fangraphs merch and swag, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Being a Fangraphs member not only comes with user perks like browsing in dark mode and blazing fast ad-free speeds, but it is also the best way to help support Fangraphs in everything we do. From the daily articles, to the leaderboards, to the projections, to the podcasts to, of course, the prospect lists. It's all made possible thanks to our members. We couldn't do it without your help. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello again,
3: Fangraphs Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from the Kitchen Island in Tempe, Arizona. Prospect week is just about to wrap. We are most of the way through the slog here at the site. Uh and so we're taking a brief pause on this Thursday morning to podcast with contributor Tess Taruskin, who's been working on prospect lists uh for the last couple of years. Tess, how's it going?
1: Going good, going good. Uh finally got a good night's sleep last night, you know, catching up on some lost hours over the earlier part of the week, so feeling good.
3: What was the point this week where you felt like you had to push through the most? And what are the things that you're doing, like whether it's auditory or whatever it is to kind of like be your pace car through the parts of it where we're really grinding and pushing?
1: I think that with the the hundred and we'll get into this a little bit later, uh, but with the hundred, you have, you get to a point where you have everybody sort of stacked within categories and then the mountain of work of shuffling those categories together. Was where I was like, okay, this is going to be something I just have to throw all of my attention at for however right. long it takes. As far as how to, you know, mitigate the mental load, I guess I had uh, a lot of classical music going this week. That was sort of the calming factor to kind of keep me keep my head on straight. But um, you know, that's probably just the me thing. <laughs> do
3: you have a? Well, you play the violin, which is a thing people don't for sure don't do. know. Who are listening to this?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: What is it about classical music that kind of puts you in that groove that's the thing and is there like a certain type of are there even subgenres of classical music that to the untrained ear
1: yeah oh well i think it's mainly really the the main reason is that it doesn't have lyrics i think lyrics get too distracting when i'm trying to think in words yes. and then other words are coming in so that's that's really the short answer i'll i'll use jazz in the same sort of like slot as uh as classical for for that reason
3: i like doing the unintelligible singers yeah. Like, I can't tell what they're saying anyway, so it's fine.
1: Right, right. Well, I, I'll put on like, so I had um, this, uh, this composer's name is Edvard Grieg. I had him go in and I just kind of let Spotify make a playlist for me. And some of them did end up having lyrics in another language. And even that was too much for me. I'd have to skip over that track. Um, yeah, you know, just get Italian shouting
3: report notes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you notice any, like anytime I use entree into the big leagues instead of entrance into the big leagues, it's probably because <laughs> of the classical music influence. Yeah, it's uh, honestly, I, I'm not as, as well-versed in classical to be able to kind of nitpick exactly what it is I do and don't listen to in certain points. I kind of let Spotify algorithm take it away. But it's more of a mood, you know?
3: My guys for the last two years have been King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard,
1: which ah, like is a different, like a different route.
3: <laughs> psychedelic rock band from Australia, and uh-huh. there are lyrics, but often... They have long periods where there no one's singing or saying anything, mm-hmm. and a lot of times the lyrics are just like "rattlesnake, rattlesnake, snake, <laughs> rattle rattlesnake, rattlesnake," and it's like all I right, it. like it kind of blends into the background anyway. But those guys have been my pace car, where it's just like, let's go, like buckle down and uh, and get done with it. So you alluded to. A part of the process, which we've talked about on this podcast a couple of times in the past, Mm -hmm. but not so consistently that I think everybody knows, which is that at the onset of doing the 100, there's a bunch of work already done, right? We've done like 10 or so prospect lists. And so a bunch of the reports on guys are done and we have a a pretty ballpark feel for where they're going to fit inside the 100. You and I sit down and we really slice off the top of the list. And we Mm -hmm. ignore anyone who's basically a 50 right now, like an end of year 50 future value guy. And we only care initially about those top 35 or so guys Mm -hmm. uh, at the onset and and as far as hard ranking them in order. And then the group behind those 55s and above, we tend to put into buckets of like same type players so we can make apples to apples comparisons within – these groups and so like some of our groups this year and often our groups are like tend to be like these types of groups where like high probability corner bats who are close to the majors and up the middle defenders tons of shortstops and second baseman guys who we feel really good about them staying there and also like usually guys who are close to the big leagues then you have your toolzy this is what the the superstars look like athletically and, and bodily group, you know, where they're like 6'4", you know, 190 and 1920 years old and so on and so forth. And so what we wanted to do is kind of walk you through, you the listeners, an exercise that, you know, like what we would do as if we were talking through one of these groups and uh, when we were deciding which one, Tess, you wanted to do the the group towards the back of relief, risk. Pictures. what was it that kind of piques your interest about this group?
1: I think that the, the relief risk pitcher group is an interesting to try, one to try to like mesh with a existing list using sort of tent poles within that list and then trying to take the group of apples you've already sorted and then mesh them with the oranges that are above them and like figure out how, how to do one-to-one comparisons between them. I think a good example... And is getting a little ahead of ourselves but like when it came to sort of placing them within the context of a list that was more or less or you know more formed than not you you try and make comparisons across types so like with tink hence for example we got to a point where we're like okay where exactly do we put him on a list full of people who don't you know look like him or have the same profile or makeup as him and don't even you know aren't pictures these oranges as compared to him as an apple and then like if you look at where we placed him, he's right behind Kevin Alcantara because we kind of said, well, they are of an ilk, even though they are very different. They are both guys who, you know, the the question is whether their body will develop in a, in a way that will be conducive to what their profile or what they're projecting to be now. So we saw Tinkins as sort of like the picture version of that that breed.
3: Yeah, he, you know, you're right. It did feel correct to have that little cluster of Alex Ramirez with the Mets, Kevin mm-hmm. Alcantara with the Cubs, mm-hmm. and then Tink Hentz with the Cardinals yeah. kind of stacked in there as like, yeah, this is going well so far. You can see how it might be huge if everything comes together. Mm-hmm. There's also a gap and like a scary thing about each of those guys. And, mm-hmm. you know, with Tink, it's he's a young pitcher. That's it. Right, right. Uh, his, <laughs> he hasn't been tested really. With a full starters load of innings, this monster fastball he has, we don't know for sure that it's going to stay this way when he is asked to work a full starter slate of innings. Right. And then like with the hitters above him, it's Alex Ramirez's approach is pretty terrible and he's mm-hmm. tooled out and has performed anyway so far, mm-hmm. but his approach is pretty terrible. And then Kevin Alcantara's levers are so long that when everyone's throwing 94, is he going to be on time for that? And then basically, Ramirez slots ahead of Alcantara because they're basically the same age. And Ramirez has performed a little bit better at like a level ahead.
4: Mm -hmm. And
3: that's it. Like, you know, like at some point you're splitting hairs, the profiles are really similar. And it's just like, yeah, this guy's like a year younger or is like a level ahead of the other guy. And that's kind of tends to be it. So
1: yeah. And then, like, dialing back a little bit more to the relief risk pitchers, like, you get kind of a chunk of them all in a row with with Eater through Hall, which includes Bryce Miller and Kate Cavalli. And then you could, you know, it's, it's not impossible to see why DL Hall and a guy like Mason Miller could be comparable, but you but you have to take into so to account like the other factors on their profile that would indicate whether one or n- one or the other would be better ranked, and they ended up with a huge gap between them, which I think is sort of part and parcel to that process of like the apples being compared first before hooking them up into the list.
3: Right, so you can see, like if folks are looking at the top 100 right now, that very top of the 50 future value tier, which starts with Kodai Senga, Ozzy mm-hmm. Peraza, Ezekiel Tovar, The top of that group is, like, confident. You know, Kodai Senga can't get any better. He's, like, 30 years old. (laughs) Yeah. He's only on here because there's no reason not to put him on here. Like, we we can tell you how we value this plug-and-play, fourth starter on a contender. He's ready right now. Like, this is where we value that guy. And then slowly the probability that any of these guys is going to hit starts seeping away as you move down the the you know into the 60s into the 70s and into the 60s is where this relief risk group Mm -hmm. from our list making process starts to filter in and so i'll just read off how they ended up i don't have uh i actually no i guess i don't have save for posterity yet what the different versions of this group like how they lined up during the process but Mm -hmm. it goes like this now jake eater with miami bryce miller with Seattle. Is he that high? Oh, no. Rather, no. He slid a little bit at the last second. So Jake Eater with Miami. Cade Cavalli with Washington. D.L. Hall with Baltimore. And then there's a, a little bit of a gap. Then we get to Tink. Mm-hmm. Then we get to Luis Ortiz with Pittsburgh. Dre Jamison with Arizona. Gavin Williams of Cleveland. Wilmer Flores of Detroit. Bryce Miller of Seattle. Those guys are kind of clustered together too. Mm-hmm. And then Reese Olsen of Detroit. I think you could argue Ryan Nelson of Arizona is sort of in this group too. Yeah. Daniel Espino of Cleveland, Mason Miller of Oakland. Those guys are kind of clustered together uh, for the same reason now. And then Griff McGarry of of Philadelphia. That kind of rounds out who we're like, yeah, there's a chance this guy ends up in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. But – Even if he does, the impact that he's going to have in that type of role might be enough that he just kind of belongs here anyway. Right. So what was it about Cavalli, Hall, and Eater that pulls them to the very, very north of this group?
1: I think with Cavalli, he has performed so well and he already is starting at the big league level. The issue obviously and always has been his injury risk, which sort of came to fruition at the end of the year last year.
3: Yeah, he's one where we've sort of been worried about it for a while. There was some Mm -hmm. stuff in college Mm -hmm. and the delivery has been pretty violent, but he's such a strapping like strong dude.
1: Yeah. And then, yeah, only
3: last year. But Mm
1: -hmm. yes. So,
3: yeah, he's there. And then Jake Eater, who's coming back from TJ, Mm -hmm. is also like right there. Right? Do you remember what Cavalli's injury was? I think it's shoulder. Shoulder. Pretty sure it was shoulder. I think it's shoulder too, and that's part of why like just give me the elbow guy or the shoulder guy. Yeah, right. If it's close, and then obviously DL Hall is already a reliever. Yeah, like he is what he is.
1: Yeah, right, and he's he's performing, doing what he should be doing. But he has a – he's a reliever role as opposed to a starter role.
3: So it's really like proximity. Jake Eater I think has a chance to just kick down the door Mm -hmm. and be in the big leagues like immediately if he looks anything like he did when he blew out. Yeah. So trending down then, our next sort of cluster is – we talked about Tank who's sort of (laughs) on his own. Mm -hmm. And then the next group is Dre Jameson with Arizona, Luis Ortiz with Pittsburgh, Gavin Williams with Cleveland, and Wilmer Flores – of detroit (laughs) who who stands out from from this group to you
1: uh for me it's probably ortiz uh with pittsburgh i think when you look at him next to someone like cavalli it's an interesting comparison because he you know is also a a starter bill a starter guy who looks the part of a starter at this point but it's hard to you know really bank on it at this point also and it's interesting to see sort of like or to, to conceptualize how Cavalli's floor overlaps with Luis Ortiz's ceiling and what that means about how those two relate to each other and why one would end up lower than the other like they did.
3: Yeah, really, this this group, except for Jameson, mm-hmm. I guess in a certain way, all four of these guys are non-traditional looking starters, like physically.
1: Yeah, right, right.
3: Ortiz, Williams, and Flores – are all like bulky, you know, barrel chested, have mm-hmm. kind of a gut like dudes. I think that we, you know, Ortiz is such a powerful athlete that we, as we talked about him while we were like doing the Pirates list, we were just like, I don't know. I know he's a big dude, but he seems right. really athletic. Like he's, I a know, powerful like he still dude.
1: looks it. Yeah, he still looks like what you want. The results are there for now. And like what you want out of a starter is what he's giving you. It just looks atypical because of where he's coming or what he's throwing it out
3: of. And then Jameson is the opposite. where like, Dre Jameson kind of looks like if the elf on a shelf
2: <laughs>
3: was, you know, hit with a ray gun that made him six one. And mm-hmm. now he's pitching and it's, you know, he's athletic enough that you think he's going to maintain it, but it's like the opposite where there's not quite mm-hmm. the physicality typical of someone who's like eating 180 innings or whatever. It's not like that type of guy. Right. Gavin Williams has his injury stuff, which actually kept him the future value tier below this on the Guardians list. Mm-hmm. And as we were working on the pitchers towards the back of the list, enough of them had injury stuff that I was just like, yeah, you know, Gavin Williams belongs in here. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, I'd rather be right than stubborn. And so we were just <laughs> like, yeah, like, let's, we'll just correct the Cleveland list. Like, this guy belongs here. So yeah. speaking of injuries… Mm-hmm. as we slide down from this group we have mason miller and daniel espino right mason miller you and i both saw in folly he was on the mound of the day you arrived
2: mm-hmm.
3: and daniel espino obviously we, we was another guy who was like on the guardians listen and then he shows up for camp and oops his shoulders torn mm-hmm. and so like he we needed to slide him he was originally like 12th or 15th Right. And just because, like, I was all in. And now, yeah, these two guys are stacked together. Right. Close to 95th mm-hmm. because of the injury stuff. What is What about Miller? You know, tell people about Miller because I do think it's a name that they need to know right as the gun for, for spring training gets fired.
1: Yeah. He was, he just sort of like blazed away his way through um, the system in a pretty short stint uh, last year um, after returning from an injury from, I think from spring training, I think.
3: Yeah, yeah. This is part of why he's this low and why
1: because right. he's probably a reliever. And why he was on such a fast track this season, I think, just to sort of like force him up there for for the A's to to be able to use at a higher level. But yeah, so he skipped low A, went to high A, and skipped double A, and then closed out the season in Vegas. And he was blowing triple digits and averaging 99, which is just, you know, pretty eye popping for for a guy like that. Um, not to mention for me, yeah, like, yeah, like, and he located um his slider really well, and he had a really high strikeout rate throughout all of those stops. So he just carried all that momentum into the fall league, which is where we saw him, and the the slider plus the the fastball it looks like a a late inning look that will will play at the higher level.
3: Yeah, those two pitches together, I feel pretty good about. And then Mm -hmm. his changeup, this guy throws like a 91 mile an hour (laughs) changeup. There were times in the Fall League when it was really nasty and other times when it would look good to me and then no one would offer at it. Like he just Mm -hmm. wasn't getting chases from Fall League hitters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he threw it a ton. Like I've got notes in here, like full count changeup, right on right changeup, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, from Fall League. So I don't know if they were working on it or if it's, a pretty integral part of what he's doing. This guy's got his slider is like 87 plus miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Looking at it on the high speed, he's got like a curveball grip with his index finger off the ball. And like mm-hmm. most of the time when I see a guy with this grip for their breaking ball, it's like an 80, you know, 77 to 81 mile an hour like overhand curveball. Their index finger's off and they're like doing that little snap, you know, mm-hmm. with their thumb and their. Uh, middle finger around the ball this guy's doing that but it's 87 miles an hour so (laughs) there but there maybe are only so many bullets in this guy uh because Mm -hmm. based on his history so this is why Mm -hmm. he and daniel espino who's also like blowing 102 past guys with 20 Mm -hmm. inches of vertical movement and his slider is like jake deGrom's slider it's you Mm -hmm. know but he looks like he's you know a a greek statue (laughs) but he keeps getting hurt so yeah those two guys yeah, are stacked. And then,
1: kind of met in the middle there. Then
3: the guys who are sort of like, the command makes it hard for them to actually be a starter.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Whereas, like, Espino and Miller and some of the other guys we've talked about, Wil- Wilmer Flores, certainly, like, hey, there are enough strikes there. Mm-hmm. It's just a non traditional look.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Griff McGarry with Philly and Reese Olsen with Detroit are the guys who are like, it's going to be tough for them to start. Mm hmm. McGarry walked like a batter per inning in college and fell mm-hmm. – no one drafted him in 2020, even though he's got three-plus pitches because the command was so bad. And it's gotten mm-hmm. to a point where it's okay. It's still not good. Mm-hmm. But he's, his stuff is still vicious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it wouldn't surprise me if he's just D.L. Hall. Right, like, yeah. What the Orioles have done with D.L. Hall, some of that was injury-related too, where they just were like, go be nasty bullpen weapon. Mm -hmm. And I expect that will probably happen with McGarry. Reese Olsen, he's one who you did a bunch of work on. Mm -hmm. He was on the periphery and like, you know, you dove in and we felt pretty solid about including him.
1: Right. Because his command got a lot better this year. And that, that I think is a, is reason to put a little bit more stock in, in his arsenal, even if it does end up in a bullpen.
3: Uh, Yeah. The certainly the walks came down. The fastball strikes were still below sixty percent, but yeah,
1: everything else got a lot better. Yeah, yes.
3: So I think you know we can talk about pitching approach, and a guy like Reese Olson's going to throw his secondary stuff a ton. He's going to pitch backwards, Mm -hmm. and you want a guy to have that tool in his toolkit if he's going to be a starter. But when he's got to do that, Mm -hmm. it can make it a little harder to work multiple times through the order because you you know at some point you still want to take. A fastball first line right. with hitters. So, at least with certain ones. So, yeah, that's how that that's how we end up talking through and lining up guys within a, like a phenotype prospect phenotype.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: The group of guys that we didn't really have this year was like the catching group.
1: We had some, but yeah, it wasn't as last year was just a such a robust group of catchers, and this year not yes. so much.
3: <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, it feels like a blip. I don't know that we're underrating anyone necessarily. We did do diligence on guys like Austin Wells and Harry
1: Ford and right, some of the or like other... Jefferson Cuero and other like yeah. further away guys who you know. There's reason to sort of dream on it. There's reasons that he could that they'll you know they're more likely to sort of need a little bit more time before they get considerate or considered for a list that's just an overall top 100. But they're still performing well enough to. To warrant discussion.
3: Yeah. Quero is an interesting one for now, but just because of the guys who we ended up cutting, a lot of them were like, this guy probably can't catch, right? Or can't catch right now or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And we did have a dude or two like that, like Kevin Parada with the the Mets on the list. Mm -hmm. But that's just because, you know, we think that guy's going to hit enough that it doesn't matter where he plays and like Austin Wells and Harry Ford, there's Mm -hmm. enough hit tool question with both
1: right or even dylan dingler like there's just guys who just sort of are either you know it's whether they're approaching their peak or if they're like on a downside, trying to just you know determine based on what you can access and what you can glean and what you what your takeaways are from what you access and glean how you think that that will impact their ability to catch or or their ability to hit and how those two you know things go together and how they have to fit together and where the exceptions can and can't be made within those parameters.
3: So let's talk about a couple of the, the weird ones, the ones who during the process we were just like, are we really going to do this? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Tell me, you know, at one point during the process, we felt good enough about how much of the list was written that we started combing back through everyone, just sort of doing a sanity check throughout the entire Myers to see if we were missing anyone based purely on some sort of performance or some sort of elite metric like just use all your leaderboard sorting tools to identify mm-hmm. some some more guys to talk through and you came up with with someone who we ended up sticking close to the middle of the list
1: yep that would be Addison Barger with Toronto and it's like you said it was he was someone who i was looking at trackman data and i saw you know his max exit velos were really high he was hitting at a launch angle that was you know or his average launch angle was like really conducive with power and then i took a look at his swing his swing is just so it's you you it's a spectacle you you can't look away from it once he once he gets going because he just like unleashes so much so much bat speed from the left side and when he when he does time it well it looks it's just fun to watch it looks like it just recreates these gigantic moonshots that are just um you know always fun to watch but then you combine that with a defensive profile where he fits into multiple different locations on the infield potentially outfield as well with a really good arm and it just seems like the kind of guy who could really you know bust out uh, assuming things do hit or you know all these uh, um elements align and at this point I think it's, it's fun to assume or, you know, it's, yeah, I think that it, there's reason enough to assume that they can align for him to be um, yes. as high as we stuff him.
3: Yeah. So Barger was in the fall league and yeah, the bat speed component right away. You're just like, holy cow. And this guy's yeah. on your, your target list because he put up like a, a 150 WRC plus at high A. Right. And you're just like, all right. Like if he's, you know, really 50% above the league average, like. Mm-hmm. We, this guy deserves some attention, not and not in the way like, not like nobody's talking about Addison Barger. No, That's, no, no, he deserves to be talking right. about. Like, <laughs> no, like, we really need to drill on this guy and, and see what we think because there are some reasons that he sort of fell off of the radar. This guy was on the Blue Jays list in 2019. Kylie and I did double barrel action on the Blue Jays list that year, and like, this guy made it. Mm-hmm. This was a famous high schooler, he got like a quarter million coming out mm-hmm. and he had a drug suspension we don't know what it was like we don't really care but he had mm-hmm. a some sort of drug suspension that cost him 50 games the pandemic happened and so basically for most of two seasons this guy just disappeared mm-hmm. and when we returned to play in 2021 the blue jays they didn't accelerate his promotion to coincide with the missed time they just sent him to low a Right, And so he performed okay and actually pretty well, but yeah. he was an old for low A guy. Right. And so we right. were just like, eh, we'll worry about it later. And now mm-hmm. he's like there. Yeah, so right. So his approach in the Fall League was not good, but a lot of Kai's approach in the Fall League is not good because mm-hmm. it's the Fall League and they're right. like, ready to be done. <laughs> and so like this guy was taking huge hacks in the Fall League and he's not really a shortstop. He actually looked better at, on the infield. In the fall league, than he did on tape when he put on like the synergy tape from the regular season. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Mm-hmm. But in the fall league, it was like passable. Now,
1: mm-hmm. the Blue
3: Jays have a shortstop, right? <laughs> who's pretty good. And mm-hmm. their backup shortstop and utility guy was an all star last year. And Santa- yeah. Santiago Espinal is a hell of a player who was mm-hmm. way too low on the Blue Jays list when we did that. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, that's on me. I was, I doubted that guy and he's for real. So uh, Matt Chapman's also pretty good. So right, yeah. Barger is like, you know, left-right combo with Whit Merrifield at second base. Maybe, you know, he's going to play the outfield some. Mm-hmm. This is where predicting versus scouting intersects with one another because mm-hmm. I think Addison Barger could probably play a perfectly fine second base and mm-hmm. with his stick, on the infield that's definitely like I'm in we put him where we're right. 100 because of that right with Toronto if he's mostly playing left field if he's kind of like platooning with Merrifield a little bit and he's basically better version of Cavan Biggio mm-hmm. well I mean like Biggio is extremely patient and all that stuff but like this is this is a more athletic version of Cavan Biggio right maybe that he doesn't perform like a top 100 guy just because of the situation he's in but in a vacuum we think he is so uh-huh. yeah he was absolutely and folks you know go to the fangraphs youtube page his video from falling is on there take a look at this guy's swing uh david laurella did an interview with him and talked about where the origin of this like swing came from so that's also on the site you can dig into this guy a bunch more laurella does great interviews with players and a lot of them are prospects Mm -hmm. Um, and so people should dig into that. Obviously we talked about Mason Miller, which was another one where it's talking to a scout who has A's coverage and like the A's are definitely like under the umbrella of orgs that you have to kind of, you know, keep tabs on as a contributor Mm -hmm. at the site. Oakland is Mm -hmm. like the org holding the umbrella. Right. (laughs) So like, you know, Mason Miller is like one of your dudes, no doubt. Yeah. But I'm talking to a scout who covers the A's who, and we're talking through the relief Guys, and he's like, Yeah, like if you're gonna put guys like this on there, you gotta have Mason Miller on there. Mm-hmm, we yeah. already talked about him. Uh, let's talk about Miguel Blaze, who uh, the fact that he's included, I don't think is crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that he's, I'm gonna go to his ref page. I'm pretty sure that he's been on other people's lists, but we stuffed yeah, think, this guy.
1: Yeah, he, I think we stuffed It's interesting though, having talked about Tink and Kevin Alcantara, because he started in that camp or in that realm of our. Our, of our overall list where we were just sort of the unknowns of future development and all these all these question marks were sort of keeping him in that realm but then he just shot up once we got a got eyeballs on the tool set and got like the limited looks that we could get and like more insight onto into like what we think he might turn into just you know set him on a rocket to the moon
3: i think kylie stuffed him as well looking in oh yeah the little yeah the naughty spreadsheet that we share with Kylie. (laughs) Kylie, I think had him in his top 30. Mm
2: -hmm. And
3: then B-Ref has him at BA, MLB, and BP all on, you know, Mm -hmm. close to like, he's at close to 90 for two of them and 70 for one of the others. So Mm -hmm. yeah, like this is one where, you know, he belongs almost instantly just by watching him swing a baseball bat and know that it's not like, Sometimes guys who swing like this have a red flag, like they're striking out 30% of the time on the complex or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we included someone on the list who did that, Christian Hernandez with the Cubs. Right. Typically, that's a a ruby red flag. This guy did not do that. And in fact, his surface level peripherals, the walk and strikeout rates, are worse than his underlying chase and contact rates. Like (laughs) somehow, something about how, you know, this guy, goes about it or just it's randomness or whatever it is. Like the underlying data suggests that this guy's better in those two areas than he looks on the surface level stats that are just available publicly. Mm -hmm. So combine that with elite, like elite power playability right now for his age. We're talking about, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, so I don't want to say what the miles per hour threshold is nor what the angle launch angle window is because i don't know that this like the team personnel who sent us th- sent us this particular data point mm-hmm. i don't want to blow up their spot right but we have like it's like a barrel rate proxy mm-hmm. where like barrels for statcast is a certain exit velocity like percentage of your contact that is a certain exit velocity and within a certain launch angle window -hmm. Such that, like, you're doing damage almost always when you hit the ball that hard in the air to the, you know, that extent.
2: Mm -hmm. But
3: not too high because it's a pop up, then, right? So, like, it's in that window. So, this is not exactly the same as barrels, but it is like that, in that we have like a velocity threshold and a launch angle window of impact. The big league average, actually, the average for the spreadsheet that we have, which is like all the minor leagues, Mm -hmm. you know, of guys who had enough balls in play. Is 12%. Okay. 12% barrel proxy rate. Okay. The average for Major League Baseball, all of Major League Baseball is about 15.5%. And then we have position by position breakdowns that we like. I spent a lot of time working on in August and September to like create baselines for all these metrics for big leaguers. The starting center fielder. Barrel Proxy is 14.5%, which makes sense. It's center field, so it's going to be right. below the big league average overall, 15.5%, because it's hard to find guys who can actually play center field, right? Okay, so that mm-hmm. tracks. Miguel Blaise's Barrel Proxy was 20%. Yep. All right, 20%. <laughs> so that's like if I'm looking at like some of these quad-A guys, like Jake Cave, mm-hmm. Moises Gomez.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you know, Wes Clark,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Miguel Blaze was up there with Edouard Julian, Colt yep. Keith, who has no position. He's super strong. He's a 240 pound dude now. He's put on mm-hmm. 30 pounds of muscle since he came to pro ball. He's now like a yoked positionless hitter. Miguel Blaze, who's like a spindly teenager,
1: mm-hmm.
3: has a barrel rate on par with that guy. Right. So it's nuts.
1: Yep.
3: I don't know, you know, certainly there's risk here. It's you know, this is a teenage prospect. So, but in terms of lining up, yeah, like if we're, if we dropped Miguel Blaze into a draft class, mm-hmm. he's going in the top three or
1: top Oh, five. yeah, easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And it was, you know, it wasn't just like we looked at the nerd stuff and then we're like, let's do it. No, like on the phone talking to, mm-hmm. you know, I talked to one of my last calls with, was with a pro scouting director mm-hmm. who was just like, that's a top 30 prospect. <laughs> wow. I was like, all right, wow, good, thanks, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, those were the two where where it felt like, are we really gonna do this? And yeah, we did it, and that's why.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to get it's hard to get video of Miguel Blaze to to back you up. I had to scour TikTok to find his personal TikTok account.
2: <laughs> yes, and that's yeah.
1: that's you know the, the day and age we're living in. But you yes, know, And is. there was some fun like Spanish language trap music going on in the background, and you know, editing Tour de Force.
3: It is funny because. You know, at one point you had to have like an Instagram burner to see what these guys were doing because (laughs) it's not like oh let's look at the social lives of Dominican teenagers, but it is like no, they're putting when they do something good they tend to put it on there and you want to see what that looks like.
1: Right. I mean, I think they know the impact that it has too. Like they realize how hard it is for us to see what they're doing and they want us to see it. So I'm glad that we have access to it in the way that he's giving it to us with the chat music.
3: Funny how it's transitioned from the gram to TikTok like. Yeah. Not a lot of time. So Mm -hmm. like I don't have a TikTok. I think you can kind of search TikTok more readily without an account, which is not true of Instagram. Mm -hmm. And certainly we would never republish like any video that these guys put online. If you're like a you know, a prospect blogger or whatever, you know, which anyone listening to this could be, Mm -hmm. there's no barrier to entry for on the internet. So but um, please don't do that. Please don't take like a, a 17, 18-year-old kid's stuff and to try yeah, to right. no, no, no. <laughs> promote your own you know, thing. Like, oh, look at you know Eric Longenhagen's 98-mile-an-hour fastball. Mm-hmm. Very zero impressive. De- zero degrees of external shoulder rotation somehow wow. still throwing 98. <laughs> the, In- impressive right. stuff. <laughs> so is there anything else you wanted to touch on before um, we split any other dudes who you want to highlight for the listeners?
1: No, honestly, Barger was my big one, so I'm glad we got to talk about him.
3: And then how about your picks to click?
1: My picks a pick to the click? click you,
3: want to, you want to point to? Let's
1: pull up my list here. Well, I think it's it's sort of a similar situation in a way, but your Donnie De Los Santos is one of those ones where if you can – bank on the numbers that you're getting out of the DSL, then it's impressive. So like seeing that translate in a way that's more, more sustainable in affiliated ball is what you're looking for. And, but that's exciting. Like if it's the kind of thing where the ceiling is so high, but there's enough sort of skepticism around what is making that ceiling so high right. that I'm excited to see where that ceiling ends up being a year from now.
3: Yeah, similarly to your Jordani, Mm Kind of lights you up in that barrel proxy metric. It's just he did it in the DSL. Mm -hmm. Exactly. on the complex like Blaze. Yeah. Which in some ways is more impressive because even guys who you know have some juice down there. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of those guys end up coming to Arizona and Florida for extended spring training. And then they go back to the Dominican for the DSL. Mm -hmm. So you get a look at a bunch of these guys even though they're in the DSL. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, Yordani. But they end up going back to the DSL where no one throws hard. Where, mm-hmm. like, it is very rare to find anyone who's, like, throwing more than 91. And of right. course of course it is. And right. it's just hard to turn the baseball around with, like, this much velocity when no one's throwing hard. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what's happening totally. here with Yordani. Um, with so in yeah. some ways it's, like, weirdly more impressive. Right. But also, yeah. yeah, he's maybe a third baseman and, like, blazes in center field. Anyway, you can mm-hmm. see how those guys stack. But, yeah, Yordani. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and then the other one I think is Grant McRae, which is another sort of, you know, 2022 revelation for the Giants in the Giants system, and he's his defense is so much fun to watch in center field, another center fielder, but is it, and he made some like really obvious swing adjustments this year that have like really improved his bat to ball, but he still strikes out a lot. So I think if yeah. if if the progression continues where he's growing and learning. And all of that translates to other elements of his overall profile, specifically that in zone swing and miss, then it's another thing to just sort of like totally dream on. But at this point, that one question mark is big enough that it's it's a huge barrier for him. And so I'm excited to see what he looks like this year at all. And if it's another another huge accelerating season for him.
3: My couple guys, folks, should check out the Picks to Click article, which uh, has already run on the site. Not as we're recording, but while you're listening to this. Mm-hmm. Hendry Mendez with Milwaukee. Swing change guy. Got, got to have some sort of swing change there. Elite feel for contact. He's grown three inches in the last 18 months. He's now like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and has always had this contact foundation. But he's <laughs> like an ultra flat, downward cutting, swing, like tons of ground balls. Mm-hmm. So if he can ever learn to lift the ball, holy cow! Like there might mm-hmm. be a huge breakout there. So he's on, he's one of my picks to click. I don't know if he's actually going to make the cut here because uh, I haven't sent Meg the, the
2: <laughs> copy
3: for the article yet. But um, mm-hmm. Christopher Torin, not mm-hmm. yet sure if it's Torin or Torine. I talked to a Diamondbacks person who's actually heard it both ways, so uh, not totally sure on that yet. But this is you know Diamondbacks middle infield prospect, another premium contact guy, super loose. He's not especially, like, projectable physically. He's he's a little bit closer to being physically mature for how for how old he is. But an you know, up-the-middle guy with, like, this type of feel for contact, I'm super-duper in. Saw him a little bit last fall, not a ton, just knowing that, like, the Diamondbacks had, like, a little phase that wasn't quite, like, in Structure League.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, like, I saved a bunch of the East Valley. The East Valley lists are going to go towards the end here just so, like, you and I – can run around the backfields and get like fresh looks at all these guys and have right. a more up to date list. So yep, yep. Christopher Torin or Torin is another one. Like even if he doesn't make doesn't make the picks to click here, um, people should should follow. All right, well, Tess, thanks for all the work that you've done on Prospect Week and you know that you'll continue to do. I think yeah. unless <laughs> you see how your full time job application with that team goes.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: Fingers crossed for that, but uh, Fingers if not. Crossed. Continue, folks should continue to look forward to Tess's contribution to the prospect lists at the site. I want to thank uh, Dylan Higgins for producing. Thank you so much, and for everyone whose ears I'm pumping into right now for listening. So talk to you guys again soon, and I'll be on uh, the fantasy side of the site doing podcast stuff this weekend. So check that out. Really appreciate everybody listening and reading the Prospect Week stuff. Talk to you again soon.
5: Hey, baseball fans! Uh, this is David Lorla. My guest is uh, John Manuel, longtime editor in chief at Baseball America, and for the last five plus years now, a scout for the Minnesota Twins. John, thanks for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio.
4: My pleasure, David. I think this is my first time on Fangraphs Audio, so uh, I hope I make a good impression. <laughs>
5: I'm sure you will, John. You've done uh, more podcasting in your life, I think, than I have. So. <laughs>
4: It was a long time ago in a uh, life that feels far, far away, but uh, yes, we did do a lot of podcasts back then.
5: Yes, riding a bicycle, I think this is called. And this is uh, Prospect Week here at Fangraphs. So we're going to talk about prospect rankings, you know, the history of prospect rankings in part. But let's start with this, John. Just how different do rankings look from inside a front office than they did from the outside?
4: (laughs) That's a good way to start. Cause we actually do some ranking exercises in our pro scouting group. Um, I guess we're called the player personnel department now. Hope I'm getting that right. Anyway, in our pro scouting group, we do ranking exercises and it involves our own scouting grades. And then it involves our pro model and a lot of teams model how these players are going to go. Hopefully our model isn't AI powered and doesn't threaten to kill us all soon. Like AI is doing <laughs> these days. So, uh, I digress but the that, that exercise is different than it is or it was in my experience of baseball america because it's just so private and the wisdom of crowds there is the group of scouts you know we certainly have more information at our disposal as an organization but you know the way baseball america's process always was you know you had a point person for every organization but as you're doing a top 100 prospect list for example it could be, you know, from when it started, where Alan Simpson, uh, the founder of Baseball America, did his first Top 100, where it was basically him and Tracy Ringlesby, the Spink Award-winning writer, and then Ken Leiker, who was a Baseball America editor at the time. You know, those three guys basically sitting around, I think, on a phone. I don't know how long that phone call took, and it was probably really expensive back then, you know, like in 1990. But they just sat around the phone and kind of argued it with each other. For all I know, they might have like it might have been like an old fantasy football league where they mailed their top 100s to each other and then argued about them after. I'm trying to think of the logistics of doing a top 100 in 1990. The list wasn't bad, and uh, you know, they evolution of those lists. uh, That was three or four people to where you know by the time I was done at BA, eight or nine people were in the meeting, and you know, to my everlasting regret, Ben Badler in 2017 was saying like. And I really think we should figure out a way to squeeze Juan Soto on here. You know, <laughs> uh, I know he's only 18 or 17 and uh, hasn't played yet, even in the GCL. I don't, I mean, I think his GCL season the year before had been truncated by injury. And I remember ending the meeting, like we were having, we'd b- it'd been a long meeting, and I was like, he's a corner bat in the GCL. I think we can wait. And we ended, and that's it. So he didn't make the top 100. So, uh, Maybe that was a good sign that it was time for me to go, <laughs> but I, that process is a different process. It's just like a six hour process. And here with the club, I file my reports. I speak up for my, the players I know. If I have something to add on other players, I pipe in, but those internal rankings, I'm not really part of. Um, so it's very different. It's, uh, when I took this job, the late, great Mike Radcliffe, our vice president of player personnel, just passed away, uh, in fa- here in February from pancreatic cancer. He told me, uh, you know, baseball America, you're like the big fish in a little prospect ranking pond. You know, the little pond of baseball media says so you're going to be a very small piece of a very large machine if you take this job. So I want you to work with us, but you need to understand that. And that's been the biggest difference is I could help shape those rankings and I don't do that anymore. And, uh, some of that's fun and some of that is, uh, You know, my ego liked shaping those rankings. So I got I like the ego of being, uh, you know, the face of a top 100 or, you know, face of Baseball America or one of the voices of it. I I like that ego part of it. And uh, I think that's part of prospect ranking in general. That's a positive and a negative. So
5: and Baseball America once upon a time was the big pond. It was really the only place that people would go for prospect rankings because very few other people did it. Now a lot of people do it. Like, how much has that really shaped you know the the whole the world we're speaking of?
4: Yeah, I think I really. I mean, I'm not trying to you know be egotistical. I really do think that Alan Simpson invented prospect ranking. I mean, if the sporting news did it before him, I'm not aware of it. You know, they might have done surveys or those kind of things, but like consistent like top ten rankings and top 100 prospect ranking. I think in 1988. PA did a top 50 prospect ranking and then didn't do one in 89 and then in 1990 did a top 100. I graduated high school in 1990, so obviously I wasn't part of those. But yeah, when I started there was fall of 96 and the competitor to the magazine really was uh, USA Today Baseball Weekly, which I don't think necessarily did prospect rankings. I think they ran minor league and major league stats. If they didn't run minor league stats, they definitely ran a lot of major league stats. They swam in a lot of the same waters that uh, we did. And I know that when I went to the College Series, there was a USA Today Baseball Weekly writer there. So, you know, because I was a college writer when I first started at BA. But as far as like um, the prospect rankings, I think Baseball America kind of was alone. You know, the Baseball Cube isn't the be-all, end-all. But when I look on prospect history at the Baseball Cube, it's a lot of uh, top 100s, by Baseball America are like the ones that are archived there. I guess they aren't using fan in here. This has pipeline. There has to be somebody else. There has to be more here. I must be on the wrong wrong page. But when I started there, there wasn't really anybody else doing rankings. And I remember when the the, the internet really changed that and baseball prospectus, I remember uh, I think Rainey uh, would spearhead a lot of their prospect rankings that were purely, you know, not purely, but mostly off the stats. And now you certainly have a lot more outlets. I would say the most durable ones are definitely Fangraphs. Obviously, MLB Pipeline, Baseball Prospectus uh has been a pretty durable prospect source. Forgive me if I left somebody out. Um I know Prospect Live is around and does good work and you know, I one of my former coworkers with the Twins, Jason Panini was hired from Prospects Live and uh, I had a lot of respect for Jason and the work that he did. He's moved on from the Twins, but there's a lot of people in the prospect space. I will say a lot of them have come and gone, and the ones that really have come and gone is, you know, there was an explosion in the early 2000s of team-related sites and everybody ranking their own prospects. I guess the other person who I left out of that discussion uh, was John Sickles. You know, obviously John was doing that with uh, Bill James, and then uh, he was an assistant with Bill James, and it was kind of, again, using more of a sabermetric approach for ESPN and then doing it on his own at the the minor league ball site that he had for a long time. And I hope that John lives long and prospers. He's a great Star Trek fan and definitely uh, shined a lot of light on the baseball prospect ranking universe. But I, I really do think Alan Simpson invented it. I don't know outside of Bill James. I can't think of another baseball writer who deserves more to be in the To get the Spink Award and be in the Baseball Hall of Fame in the writer's wing than Alan Simpson, he was difficult to work with. (laughs) I worked with him for nine years, and we didn't always see eye to eye, and we butted heads a lot. But he is a great guy, extremely well-intentioned, and uh, Baseball America changed the way people see baseball because... Seeing the game through a scouting and player development perspective is something that a lot of fans do and a lot of writers have to do now. And uh, that just wasn't the case before he started the magazine in his garage in 1981. I think he's uh, criminally underrated.
5: No, and uh, Alan Simpson has gotten my vote the few opportunities that I've had to vote for that award for sure.
4: Yeah, it's disappointing that he came up for the vote and didn't didn't get it a couple times. There's one in particular. uh, (laughs) I shouldn't go there. But it was really disappointing one you, so. No,
5: uh, I will avoid going there myself, John. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that the Twins do internal rankings of, of their prospects and maybe other orgs too. I'm sure other teams do this. How much do teams actually care what BA, Pipeline, Fangraphs, et cetera, are writing, saying, and how they're ranking the players?
4: I would say without revealing too much of our sources and methods, and but I have talked to other organizations about this, both when I worked at BA and when I, and since then, you'd be surprised how much some of those rankings matter. And I was told in one of my first meetings, like, why do we hire you? This is going to mess up our model (laughs) because now we aren't going to trust BA as a source. (laughs) So and that was just one person's opinion. You know, I had to try to convince them that all these things are more than one person. I do think that who does the rankings really does matter. You know, Jim Callis hired me at Baseball America. He worked at Baseball America for 13 years. Now he's been at Pipeline for uh close to 10 years now. You know, I happen to think Jim is the best prospect ranker in the history of prospect rankers. So, you know, I tell our guys, hey, Jim did these lists. I don't know if they follow up on my advice. And those are the lists that are in the model, but... I think a lot of club models are similar and that one category, one piece of the equation, I guess now we have to call them algorithms, but it's really just an equation, right? I mean, kind of the same thing. One part of it is industry rank. And if you're using industry rank, that really means, that's a code word for a public ranking. So maybe some clubs use Fangrass, maybe some use Baseball America, maybe some use Pipeline, uh, maybe some use Prospect Live. I, I don't know. I'm not sure which ones they all use. They certainly have a lot to choose from. I know college baseball is a space where it used to make me laugh and also infuriate me when I was doing the Baseball America College Top 25. And then I would see like we release our our college poll and then I would see like there'd be nine polls, you know. <laughs> and it's almost getting that way with top 100s. And I'm not sure how good that is um, for the industry. I think it kind of clouds things more than more than anything else. But, you know, I have a fantasy uh, a baseball friend who uh, he's a real person, but he's a, you know, I know him through fantasy baseball and he, um he sent me a spreadsheet with like eight top 100s. I didn't even know there were that many. So I think that clubs might be amalgamating those, but I think they're probably picking one. And I think the role of the public list can actually affect in a small way, a club's internal rankings. And I think that's true in the draft as well. Again, it's kind of a wisdom of crowds idea. It's kind of a, the more information, the merrier, but let's vet that information as well as we can and not just follow it blindly. So that's I think mean, that's the that's been the, the feedback I've gotten both before again, before I, I worked for the club and, and since I started working there.
5: And with the club in mind, I know from an article that I read a few years back that you mentioned Mike Radcliffe earlier. Mike Radcliffe once got in touch with you and said, you know, hey, your ranking there at the top of our twins list is far different than our own.
4: Yeah, it was uh <laughs> it was two thousand eight. I actually have already called I started this podcast with his tab called up. It's uh Nick Blackburn, uh the infamous Nick Blackburn. In two thousand seven, uh at the end of the two thousand seven season, the twins didn't really have an obvious number one prospect. Um when I started my reporting, uh Cliffy said, Hey, can uh is Matt Garza eligible? And I was like, No, he's thrown seventy something innings in the major leagues and he was like, Oh. <laughs> so he didn't have one. He didn't know who their top guy was. And I just did, I just reported on, okay, I'm going to report on, you know, we had, we were doing top 30s. I think we were the only people doing top 30s at that time, which was just kind of insane. Thanks, Jim Cowles. That was his idea. But Nick Blackburn had that year where he, he had a 40 plus inning streak without giving up an earned run. He had a 211 ERA and 110 and two thirds innings in AAA. He had a, He had less than a walk per inning. I don't know what his walk percentage was, but it was low. He didn't give up any home runs either. However, he had like a 4.6 strikeouts per nine. And he went to the Fall League. And the thing is, I was doing my list, I think, after the Fall League. I remember talking to two scouts outside the Twins organization, and Blackburn pitched very well in the Fall League. Number one. Number two, he pitched the championship game of the Fall League and threw like six innings and threw really well. Four pitches for strikes. Had a curveball that was getting average grades. I was basically getting like four average pitches, maybe one's a tick above, you know, back of the rotation profile, but ready to go. You count his fall league, he threw like 185 innings. So the competition was basically uh, like Joe Benson or Wilson Ramos, who was a 19-year-old catcher in low A. And I ranked Wilson Ramos three. I think the correct answer in retrospect would have been Wilson Ramos or Bernard Spann, who had a terrible year in AAA that year, but bounced back from it the next year. Those were the guys with the best careers. But I picked Blackburn, and that's when Cliffy was like, hey, we don't share that. But internally, actually, the Twins liked Tyler Robertson better, who was a high school left-hander they drafted. But I already did know that Tyler Robertson was a big high school long-toss guy. And the Twins were a strict 120-foot long-toss Organization. I haven't thought about this at all in the interceding thirteen years, uh, David. Not at all. Not one bit. <laughs> yeah, I've chewed this over a billion times. Tyler Robertson was going to get hurt. I felt. I thought because the Twins wouldn't let him do his long toss, and he did. He lost velocity. He got hurt. I was in a long toss obsession, Alan Jager phase of my career for sure. And you know, Blackburn had two really solid years of pitching 200 innings as a back of the rotation starter. But the correct answer was Wilson Ramos. And the crazy thing is today, in today's environment, media environment, that list would have been torn up as soon as they traded Johan Santana for Carlos Gomez, which they did. And I did the Mets that offseason as well. So I knew that Carlos Gomez, I was like, oh, Carlos Gomez would be their number one prospect now. But the book was already sent to the printers, so we didn't change it. And we didn't change it online because we thought it was important to have consistency with our readers and not to send them mixed messages. That was our opinion at the time. So I remember having all these discussions with Jim a lot. So.
5: Sure. And with with print and online in mind, something that I hadn't thought of for a long time, but was reminded of now you mentioned Joe Benson. Back when I was contributing periodically to Baseball America, Joe Benson was tearing the cover off the ball in double A. He was maybe hitting 420.
4: And he had a physique. I mean, he was a power speed body guy. He was a physical specimen, was he not?
5: oh he absolutely was and i recall writing a feature story about him about how he was raking and this was going into just the print edition of ba not online and by the time it actually ran he had his uh batting average had dropped maybe about uh 180 points and he was not looking very good at all so
4: yeah i mean he had <laughs> you know he had ups and downs and yeah that year that 2007 year he was in the midwest league and you know, had a 715 OPS, but he had, you know, he did have a 347 on base. He got hit by a lot of pitches. It was mostly the the projection, but the twins, you know, it was, you know, it's weird in some ways as an organization, we've changed so many things since then. I mean, obviously I wasn't in the organization at the time, but you know, Terry Ryan uh, has retired. Obviously we've had Derek Falvey as our chief baseball officer, officer and Thad Levine as our general manager since December, 2016. And those go the guys who hired me, but I, Honestly, my familiarity with the Twins, having done prospect ranking all those years, knowing Cliffy, knowing Darren Johnson, knowing Sean Johnson, other people in the organization. I had a level of familiarity with the Twins that I did not really have. I probably trusted the organization and those guys more than probably anybody else. And I knew Derek Falvey from the fact that he'd hired six former BA staffers or interns He'd helped hire those guys uh, with the Cleveland, you know, at that time, Indians, you know, from Matt Foreman, who's their current assistant general manager to Clint Longnecker, who's their, uh, I don't remember what his title is now, but he's uh, like probably maybe third or fourth in their scouting department. He's one of their chief amateur scouts. All those guys worked for me at BA and uh, Derek was just kind of looking to, for me to find the next guy. He needed a scout in the Carolinas on the pro side, instead of recommending Somebody else I recommended myself. So <laughs> he fell for it and here I am. But, uh, that only really happened because of my familiarity with the twins. And I think honestly that that trust that, uh, you know, Cliffy that I had in Cliffy and, uh, Cliffy had in me. So really going to miss him. That's a, that's a blow to our organization that I just don't know how you, you just don't replace somebody who's that quality of a human being. Not to mention, uh, that quality of a scout, uh, just, uh, 80 grades all over the card.
5: And let's jump back John to uh, 2005. I own every uh, BA prospect handbook since 2005. So that is the one that, I looked at the 2005 handbook yesterday to see you know, what jumped out at me that we can maybe talk about. And four of you ranked individually your top, I believe it was 50 players that year. Uh, Alan Simpson, Will Lingo, and Jim Callis all ranked Joe, Joe Maurer one and Felix Hernandez, too, you were the outlier ranking, you know, King Felix one, Mauer two. You know, what do you recall about those discussions?
4: Joe Mauer, I can't ever think of Joe Mauer without ever thinking of, uh, you know, in 2004, though 2003 was on the Olympic qualifying team, and I'm Greek-American, and um, Olympics were in Athens, and Frank Robinson benched Joe Mauer in a must-win game and played Gerald Laird, and in the bottom of the ninth with the U.S. trailing, he put Joe Mauer into the game and he asked Joe Mauer to bunt. <laughs> First and second, nobody out in the bottom of the ninth. He had Joe Mauer bunt. Of course, Joe Mauer bunted successfully and sacrificed both runners. But he had Joe Mauer bunt to set up uh Justin Leone and Gerald Laird, who was Joe Mauer's backup. And of course, those guys did not bring in the run. So Joe Maurer not playing, in my mind, cost me a free trip to Greece. So... I always think of that with Joe Maurer. I think I have always been a little bit more aggressive in ranking pitchers than most uh, people in the public space, space. I think I'm actually still kind of aggressive ranking pitchers for the Twins. I just think front of the rotation starters are rare, very hard to find, and you have to accept a certain amount of risk to find one. They are certainly risky. Uh, Nothing ventured, nothing gained, I guess. I mean, so in my mind, Felix Hernandez was that good. You know, Felix always makes me think also of, uh, I guess it was 2003, must have been, where uh, John Hudgens was the pitcher for Stanford, and they lost in the Cowboys Series finals to Rice. I covered every game of that Cowboys Series. That's the last time I went to every game in Omaha. And Hudgens pitched three games in ten days, through three hundred and fifty pitches. He was just phenomenal. But then he finished the year still pitching in double A, like I believe it was the Rangers who drafted him instead of a double A. And pitched against Felix in the playoffs. Might have been the next year. But he pitched against Felix Hernandez in the playoffs, and it was like this epic showdown where they, you know, went mono a mano. And I just remember I knew John Hudgens and him telling me over email just how good Felix Hernandez had been. And how it brought the best out of him. So I think I had some information asymmetry. I was really, really into Felix Hernandez. And Jim Callis was too. I think Jim ranked him number one in the Northwest League when he was 17 years old. And I felt like B.A. was ahead of the curve on Felix. And again, I just felt like the value of a number one starter is just uh, so monstrous and so huge. And that's an interesting one because career-wise, I mean, who had the higher career war? I don't I don't know. You You tell me. That's a good question. We should look them up I, on Fangraphs. <laughs> <laughs> we would have that.
5: Yeah, a, a, a few more things, John. Uh, sticking with 2005 in the actual rankings of of teams, the Angels were the top-rated farm system that year. Most of their guys really didn't do, certainly, what they were supposed to. Casey Kochman, Dallas McPherson, Brandon Wood, guys like that. But what really stands out to me is way down here, uh, 29th that season, was the Detroit Tigers, and their top three was Curtis Granderson, Kyle Sleeth, and Justin Verlander. Um, I think Joel Zumaya was four. How surprised, I guess, was the whole staff when these guys started turning into, i say two of these guys really turned into guys?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I'd be curious if anyone from 5 to 30 made it, and I think that was part of the issue for us back then was trying to balance between uh, star uh the value of stars at the front of a system and having depth. And I think we really, at that time, really were impressed by depth a lot, maybe too much. I also think that uh Justin Verlander, so that's one thing, that's evolved over the years. And J.J. Cooper, actually, I remember, did an internal study when I was still working at BA. I, I think Jim did one of these too where we realized, like, you know, the year that Bud Smith ranked one and Albert Pujols ranked two, you know, the the Cardinals didn't have much else in their farm system, but just having Albert Pujols in their system, does that make them the number one farm system? You know, that's a philosophical question. You know, you have to field 25 players. Felix Hernandez is a great example of that. As great as he was, the Mariners had to play a lot of games without him in the lineup, and they weren't good enough, you know, on those other games for him to ever pitch a playoff game. So there's something to be said for needing to have depth. But I think we've realized that if you have some stars at the top of your system, that matters more than having 10 or 12 guys who get cups of coffee. And the other part of that list, because I'd I'd written up Curtis Granderson, I interviewed him when he played for the University of Illinois Chicago and was on his way to leading the country in batting. So I really did know how good Curtis Granderson was. I, I thought highly of him at the time and I loved Kyle Sleeth. I, you know, Kyle Sleeth was the ace of USA baseball's college national team in the summer of 2002. He won like 27 straight decisions between the sophomore and junior years. He was a dominant college starter, but he got hurt in pro ball because, uh, you know, they, he was a real kind of a crossfire guy and they tried to straighten him out and. His whole body kind of got a little bit out of whack, and what I was always told. He didn't really attack his uh, rehab from his Tommy John, and he didn't really come back from his Tommy John really well. And then Justin Verlander, the short version of this oft-told story for me is, (laughs) I saw Justin Verlander's very first college game. Uh, He pitched against Duke for Old Dominion on like a Tuesday, like the first week of February in uh, two. I was at the office at BA in downtown Durham, and I told Alan Simpson, hey, I'm going to the, Duke game, first game of the year, do you want to go? He said, no, but, uh, you know, coach at Old Dominion, Tony Guzzo, told me he's going to start his freshman, Verlander. Uh, here he's got a pretty great arm. We didn't have a ba- – Baseball America at that time did not have, own a radar gun. So I don't know how hard he was throwing, but it was – his curveball was so good that day. He embarrassed a lot of Duke hitters, including Larry Broadway, who'd been one of the top hitters in the Cape Cod League the previous summers. now a pro scout for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. And uh, so I got to see Verlander up close that year. I saw him again up close the next year. A decent amount, especially with the college national team. But he was not the most well-liked player on that college national team. That included Jared Weaver, who threw 46 and a third scoreless innings before he gave up a run. Included Houston Street in the bullpen, who in the bullpen threw 29 scoreless innings for the college national team. Including eight and two-thirds innings in a 14-inning game that Verlander started that the U.S. had to win to make the gold medal game. And his teammates did not love Verlander. As I found out later, Verlander literally got into a fistfight with Dustin Pedroia that summer. I believe it was actually in the semifinal game against the Dominican Republic. If you go through their careers, Justin Verlander drank Dustin Pedroia's milkshake for a long time. He never forgot that little personal rivalry. He did not give in to Dustin Pedroia at all those guys did not get along that was basically Pedroia's team so I had a lot of negative vibes on Justin Verlander and I thought that he was going to be a reliever and that's why we underrated him that's why he was number three on that list that's why he wasn't on the top 100 and that's the story I mean it's my fault that is one of my greatest misses but I really you know spoke up in those meetings and I said this guy's a reliever he went seven and six three years in a row at Old Dominion, and I know win losses not really matter, but usually college aces dominate. And there was an incident that year early in the year where like got hit either Princeton or some school that wasn't. I think it might have been B.J. Zemanski, actually the second round outfielder drafted by the Reds, football baseball player at Princeton. I think B.J. Zemanski took him deep, and Verlander like lost his cool, threw at the next hitter at ninety nine miles an hour, like. Lost his cool in front of a lot of scouts. There were incidents all spring, and then it took forever for him to sign. We just totally got him wrong coming out of college. And then the next year, he had like a 129 ERA in the minor leagues. He had basically the best minor league season by a pitcher in the 21st century by a wide margin. And I remember doing the prospect list for the Tigers the next year and one of their front office people saying, how did you guys miss on this guy so bad? And I had to go through all the stuff I just went through with you, <laughs> you know, minus the fight because I didn't know about the fight until 2012. But it was a good humility lesson. I got a couple of them at that same time. I ranked Eric Duncan ahead of uh, Robinson Cano in the Yankees list one year. Eric Duncan was their first round pick. So ouch. Yeah, that that's an ouch. Th- those are both ouches. Uh, big ouches. And Mark Newman, another, you know, moment of silence for the late Mark Newman, a good, good guy, was, you know, minor league director for the Yankees for a long time. And, uh, all the years I did Yankees prospect list was, was a long time, actually, I think longer than the Twins. And Mark Newman would remind me on the regular of that, of that mistake. Hey, are you going to listen to me this time or are you going to rank Eric Duncan? I mean, like things like that. So yeah, that's one thing, uh, I've gotten some things right and some things wrong in this job, but in my old job, if I got it wrong, it was wrong for everybody to see. So I really respect people who do this for a living, put their name on it. You, you open yourself up to get humbled. And the game is a very humbling game. And, uh, you know, it humbles the players, but, uh, it humbles the writers too, or at least it needs to, it should, uh, cause it's a very hard thing to do. And you're going to get things wrong, like Justin Verlander and Robinson Cano being, uh, ranked behind. Kyle Sleeth and Eric Duncan,
5: and on the team rankings, John. Your mention of Pedroia has me looking at the two thousand five handbook. Uh, the Red Sox were twenty first, so not highly regarded by your staff. I. This is Depth City. It looks like there may be as many as a dozen guys who actually played in the big leagues, and uh, it includes includes Pedroia you know, Johnny Lester, Hanley Ramirez, John Papelbon, Brandon Moss, Anibal Sanchez, David Murphy. There are a lot of dudes.
4: Those are a lot of dudes. I think it does tell you that's 2005. That's right in the midst of kind of the stats versus scouts kind of, you know, contretemps. <laughs> did I pronounce that right? I think I did. If I didn't, cut it. But, uh <laughs> you know, right in the midst of all that hoo-ha. And I think we, as a, Organization at BA kind of struggled to come to grips with that. Uh, sometimes I think we underreacted. Sometimes I think we overreacted. You know, in 2005, that's when I got promoted to be editor-in-chief. Or in March 2005, uh, co-editor-in-chief with Will Lingo. Yeah, one of the first things we did was, okay, we're going to stop using home batting average home runs RBIs, and we're going to use triple slash stats. And we had to explain that to our readers for years, but... That was 2005. I mean, it's a long time ago now. At the same time, I think we still were like, you know, there was a famous one in that era, I think a couple of years before with Kevin Euculus and Reggie Abercrombie. We had like a debate in our staff, like, who would you rank? Reggie Abercrombie was like sixes, sevens and eights in terms of his tools and the body, you know, like John Hart would have called him a get off the bus guy. Or John Hart would have said, that's what they look like. You know, I loved it when he used those little old scouting phrases on MLB Network. So Reggie Abercrombie had the body, he had the speed, the twitch, the athleticism. But the hit grade was all projection, and he didn't control the strike zone. And Kevin Euclid was, you know, infamously the Greek god of walks and all that stuff. And, you know, Josh Boyd, who's worked for the Texas Rangers since, you know, January two thousand. Well, he he left BA in January 2004 to go work for the Padres as an area scout, actually had uh Justin Verlander in his area, and has worked for the Rangers since maybe 2006, 7, 8, somewhere in there. You know, Josh was Team Abercrombie. I actually liked Kevin Euclid more than most because I reported on him when he was at the University of Cincinnati. I remember that he played shortstop in the Cape Cod League as an undrafted junior, but you know, most scouts at that time, most of our sources were probably would have preferred Abercrombie. So I think we were in the midst of a whole industry, you know, baseball industry that was in a lot of change and we were caught up in that change. And sometimes we got stuff right and sometimes we missed stuff. And, you know, Pedroia was a guy that I rode on a ton of times in college. Uh, I was on that, again, on that college national team in summer of 2003. I'm surprised we weren't higher on Lester, you know, high school pitcher. We were all about that. I do think. But, you know, like, again, at that same time, so we got some stuff wrong. At that same time, Moneyball book came out and basically was like high school pitchers. What a joke. Why would you take high school pitchers? And the 2002 draft is like one of the best drafts ever for high school pitchers from Cole Hamels to John Lester to Zach Greinke to Matt Cain. There are many more. So right as that book is coming out and people are reading and saying, man, why would you draft a high school pitcher in the first round? Well, that's why. Those guys are why. So we got some wrong other people got some things wrong too. So it's not like we didn't think Dustin Pedroia would be a major league player. I didn't think we'd be, we didn't think he'd be an MVP, but we also wrote about him a ton at Arizona state. He broke, I believe it was Sal Bando's doubles records. So I remember writing about that. And I I remember seeing him at spring training. I I covered spring training in 2004 for BA, but I was also still the college writer. I was doing both. And I went to a midweek game between Oklahoma state and Arizona state and just Petey just being a, Riotous. I can't repeat what he said. This is a family podcast, I think, but uh, he was the life of the party and uh, a player we rooted for. But I mean, I think we thought that he was an anomalous player. And those are always the players. I think that if you're doing the BA method, which is a lot of reporting, a lot of sources, and trying to reflect the industry consensus, you're going to miss on outliers like Jose Altuve or Dustin Pedroya. Guys who are true outliers, you're going to miss on those guys. It just, it is what it is. I. I kind of accept that as part of that process, that outliers, when you're trying to reflect industry consensus, you're going to have a hard time getting real outliers correct. High school pitchers are,
5: of course, a volatile draft and and ranking situation. First basemen obviously are. Um, I happen to notice that Freddie Freeman was never ranked as the top prospect in the Braves org. He was high a few years, but Number one in front of him in different years were Tommy Hansen and Julio uh, Tehran, I believe is the correct pronunciation. Looking back, Freddie Freeman was by far the best prospect in that org, right?
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll go you one more. You want, you're picking, <laughs> are you doing this on purpose? Here's what I wrote about Freddie Freeman in his high school draft write-up in 2007. A member of USA Baseball's youth and junior national teams Um, He dominated for the youth team in 2005, but struggled in the World Junior Championships last fall, going two for 21 in Cuba. His stock rebounded as a player, I'll skim it, hitter and pitcher. While his track record makes him a top three rounds talent as a power hitter, and he was a second-round pick, scouts are increasingly intrigued with Freeman as a pitcher. Just 17, he has excellent size. And as El Medina's closer, he's shown control of two present-plus pitches Cal State Fullerton signee, he'd definitely be a two way player if he gets to college. I mean, I said teams that like his arm better may still give him a chance to hit before putting him on the mound. So I thought he was a pitcher at of high school. So I know that we got stuck in the mode of how high the bar is to be a first base prospect. We definitely got stuck on that one with him, number one. Number two, he was always in our minds Jason uh, Hayward's wingman. Number three, Tommy Hansen was awesome. <laughs> Tommy Hansen was really, really good before he had, I guess, it was alcohol issues, and I forget how he passed away. But Tommy Hansen, peak Tommy Hansen, was awesome and uh, was a frontline starter. And again, I don't think we knew to- that Freddie Freeman was going to be on a Hall of Fame arc, but it's h- an above-average first baseman or number one starter, which is easier to find. I think it's harder to find a number one starter. So... That's what I thought Tommy Hansen was. I will never forget watching him shove. He pitched fantastically opening day. It was the day that Nick Aidenhart passed away, so I don't remember what year that was. But I was in Charlotte for minor league opening day to watch Tommy Hansen, and as it turned out, he tandem with Chris Medlin. And I was there to cover that day. We were going online all day. We were live all day at BaseballAmerica.com. And then... I had to stop watching the game and report instead on the passing of uh, the news overnight that had come to light in the morning of the passing of uh, Nick Adenhart. So Tommy Hansen, I mean, I guess I'm defending Tommy Hansen, but I mean, he had a 143 ERA plus, forgive me for using B-Ref, but in his 127 and two-thirds innings as a rookie, and the next year he pitched 202 innings with a 331 FIP and a 333 ERA. I mean, that guy was really good. As a twenty-three-year-old, I thought Tommy Hansen was going to be—I thought he was so hot right now to use the Hansel <laughs> Zoolander reference—but uh, yeah, Freddie Freeman, always wrong about him too, always light. So, you're picking the hits. If you're trying to make me—if you're trying to make me uh, humble, you're doing a great job of it, David. <laughs> I think I can
5: reverse course uh, on here, John. Um, okay. I took a look at the 2017 Prospect Handbook, the last year that you were with uh, BA. And uh, JJ, Matt, Eddie, and Kyle all had uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. ranked relatively low in their top 50s. I believe a, a few of those guys had him somewhere in the mid 20s, one maybe 40 something. You had him 11th. So you were on the Laddie Jr. bandwagon pretty early.
4: Well, I have to credit, uh, my, uh, as my mom would say, my Greek heritage, because I was doing Blue Jays list that year. And, uh, you know, Alex Anthopoulos was the general manager, and uh, I usually didn't talk to general managers when I did top 30s, but I did when, when Alex was involved, and uh, Alex has always been good to me. Uh, last year, I scouted the Braves' prig training. When he was on the backfields one day, he handed me a chair. There were no chairs. Uh, he handed me one from inside the Braves' little enclosure, so uh, Alex has always been good to me, and he was generous with his time that at that time, so again... I kind of had information asymmetry compared to everybody else on the staff. I was more familiar with Vlad. I you know, probably brought my biases into it. But I had not just from him, but I had a great story that he told me uh, that I will repeat because it was about him going to see Vlad Guerrero Jr. And I think Vlad Jr. was 14 when Ismael Cruz took him to the DR to go to this backfield to go see Vlad Jr. And Anthopoulos was watching him warm up. And he's just seeing this basically fat kid. This fat 14-year-old with a funky arm stroke. He's like, what are we doing here? He said he asked Ismael Cruz, what are we doing here? And Ismael Cruz said, will you just trust me? Like, he got after Alex's complaints, he said, will you you be quiet and trust me? Like, I'm not going to bring you down here if I didn't think it was worth you seeing. Just wait for him to hit. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, I think that Alex, at the very first pitch that Vlad saw, he hit over the batter's eye in center field. And at a big league you know, uh like a, you know, Major League Teams complex. It was probably 400 feet, like a legit field. You know, my son's a high school senior, so not 14. He's 18, and his high school center field is 360 feet. Vlad Jr. was doing it on like a 400-foot, and he hit it off uh, off or over the batter's eye straightaway center field. And just, uh again, to use Pedroya's language, put on a laser show. And Anthopolis was like, oh, that's what we're doing. And they had traded, I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering this right, it was John Birdie and Chase DeYoung to the Dodgers for international pool money. I mean, like those were real players who've both had, they might be close to Major League Pension length careers. <laughs> so they were good prospects. And I really believed in, uh, I had good sources about him in and out of the organization. I had a scout outside their organization who told me he was basically going to be Edwin Encarnacion, but better. And that's back when Edwin Encarnacion was hitting 40 home runs a year, every year. And I, so I, I think I was also factoring in like Roger Center and just what a haven it is for right-handed hitters. Um I just thought that that guy was going to hit 40 home runs every year. And uh so that's why I was higher on him. I had, uh as it turns out, I had good dope on him.
5: And sources are, of course, important, John. You have me thinking here that back when I was doing uh, prospect lists and write-ups for the Red Sox system for a few publications, Mike Newman, who used to be a prospect writer and scout at Fangraphs, told me, you know, Dave, where are you going to rank Mookie Betts? And uh, I said, I'm not really sure why. And he said, rank him very highly. He's going to be uh, a great player. So I think that I had him up in a top 10 before anybody else did, and certainly not because of my own acumen, but somebody that I trusted insisted rank him.
4: Here's my draft right up on Mookie Betts, because I know I was ahead of the curve on Mookie. Top signee for the embattled Tennessee program, which was, was, was true at that time. Tells you how much has changed since 2011. Could be a difference maker for his hitting speed, and solid athleticism, the last of which helped to be an all-conference basketball player and the state's top boys bowler in 2010. Uh, question was whether any of his tools was a carrying tool out of high school, above average runner, not a true burner. That was light. But he has good base running instincts. His running ability should play in pro ball offensively. Some scouts believe the speed will play better defensively, want to shift him to center field. Uh, first step quickness, quick twitch athleticism, chance to stay in the dirt though more likely second base than shortstop, has some footwork issues to iron out in the dirt, good hitting fundamentals, excellent makeup and intangibles. That report's pretty good. And if you're going to tell me somebody out of high school saw this 5'9", 180 pound, which he wasn't 180 back then, and saw this guy hitting 213 home runs in his first 1,000 major league games, they're lying. But uh, uh, I think he was at the very back of our top 200 out of high school. If he wasn't, he was around the cusp of it. So, um, and it was a fifth round pick. And again, I had a good source on Mookie. So, uh, when he was, you know, at Lowell hitting with no home runs that year, um, in 2012, his first year, I know he, he was either number 30 or 31. And Jim Callis was doing the Red Sox list back then. But when he went to full season ball the next year and really jumped up, we were ready because we had depth of history on him. So, uh, the the player, you know, one of the things I think I do that maybe other Pro Scouts don't do, maybe I do this too much, but it's part of my background of Baseball America. These guys are on a continuum. You know, if I'm seeing them in pro ball for the first time, I write what I see, but I want to know where this player came from. What's his background? Where's he from? What's the history of players from that area like? You know, I'm biased against Georgia high school pitchers because... Adam Wainwright, Zach Wheeler. There may be a couple other ones, but, but a lot of wasted money on Georgia high school pitching. I'm partial to North, North Carolina high school pitchers. Chris Archer, uh, Madison Bumgarner, Carlos Rodon. There's a high volume of these guys over the years, as well as high quality. Uh, Matt Harrison, who had those couple of good years before he got hurt for the Rangers. If North Carolina had to have a World Baseball Classic team, it would be very deep in pitching and not so deep in position players. We, we, we would need to coax Kyle Seeger back out of, uh, back out of retirement. So we were very reliant on the Seegers, uh, for our North Carolina lineup as a proud North Carolinian. So those are the kind of things like I bring some of those biases and those information that I have to bear even in my pro reports because these players are a continuum. So when Mookie Betts is breaking out in the minor leagues, I'm believing because I reported on him and liked him out of the draft and everything that he was doing fit with the draft with what we had pre-draft, except that in twenty fourteen especially, you know, he started to tap into some of that power with thirty doubles and eleven home runs and uh you know slugging over five hundred. So but uh if you had if you were on him in twenty twelve, kudos to you guys because uh you know when you slug three oh seven when you have an isolated power of forty zero four zero in twenty twelve that's a big leap to project on that kind of on the power on a guy of that size. So he is a rare story. And uh you know, it's fun to watch the minor leagues and look for the next mookie bets. I enjoy that as part of my job now.
5: And on the subject of rare, and let's close with this, John. We could go into about a thousand different rabbit holes, but I should ask you about Mike Trout. Mike Trout's ranking history at baseball America.
4: Okay. He was cut from the 18U national team when he went to the Tournament of Stars. And so when you look at Mike Trout and people say, like, how was this guy the 25th pick in a draft? Well, that's one reason. That's actually the biggest reason. He was on people's radar, but he wasn't committed to a Power Five conference. He was committed to East Carolina. Uh, the story on that is always that uh, Billy Godwin, who's now the head coach at UNC Greensboro. But when Billy was at East Carolina, he produced winning teams and they had big leaguers. Chris Heston, who threw that no-hitter. Seth Manis, who had a couple of good years there in the bullpen for the Cardinals. Uh, Sean Armstrong, uh, who's still pitching in the Rays bullpen, I believe it is, had a lot of big leaguers at East Carolina while he was there, and they went to Super Regional several times. But he had Mike Trout committed to East Carolina, and he has asked Mike since then, and I forget what year this was, when Billy was, I believe, scouting for the uh, Yankees. He said Mike Trout told him, Coach, you came to Millville. You're the only one who came to Millville who came to my house. So tells you a little bit about Mike Trout's character. He How much he respected that. But he was cut from the 18U team by USA Baseball. And so then you didn't... So the industry did not get to see him against top-level pitching. They got to see him against Millville pitching. And he was very hard to scout that year. And Nathan Rohde, who now scouts for the New York Mets, was BA's high school writer that year. And I will tell Nathan... I will give Nathan all the credit. Nathan was all over Mike Trout that year. And constantly pushing us to rank him higher... But I remember talking to a scout during that year and cross-checking. He was like, yeah, I've only seen him hit indoors. Every time they've had a game scheduled that I've tried to go to, it has been rained out. And I've only seen him hit indoors. And it was May. He played like three regular season games by the time we did our in-print draft preview. So he was a real gamble. He just didn't have the track record that most players have who get drafted in the first round. His tools were prodigious enough for him to get ranked there. So and then the thing is, so we had the the monster year in 2010. But like so when he signed and got drafted, I remember we had a big debate. Matt Eddy was our writer, who's still at BA, about what to do with him at the top of the top of the Angels list. I believe we ranked Hank Conger number one, and Trout was either second or third. And that's one that Matt regrets and will regret to his dying day, and he regretted it immediately. <laughs> he immediately regretted this decision. He was disappointed with himself. But Matt, we again, sometimes you go risky and you go all ceiling, and sometimes you get risk averse. Um, I think teams are like this and prospect ranking can definitely be like that. And uh Hank Conger was a high floor player, switch hitting catcher with defensive chops, who we thought was gonna hit and had a long uh amateur and pro track record that had, gave more certainty than a guy who tore up the Arizona League, which is what Mike tried to done. And the next year, Mike Trout is awesome. We put him on the cover of the uh, Futures game issue. That was his first cover. Angel in the outfield. It went, uh, went to Anaheim. He showed out at the Futures game in Anaheim. I think when I saw him next, it was in the Fall League in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, where he still had prospect eligibility, but he'd come up to the big leagues at the end of 2011. And I saw him, and he was gassed. He was exhausted. So when I did my top 50 that offseason, I was light on Mike Trout because I didn't realize how exhausted he was. But I saw him take BP with Bryce Harper and Will Myers in the same group, and those guys just put him to shame. They just did. It was the mistake of taking a small sample size, seeing BP in the game in the fall league, and I extrapolated too much on that and just did not know, wasn't 100% confident that he was in a have as much impact as Bryce Harper, who I ranked over him, and I ranked Matt Moore over him, which is just ridiculous in retrospect. What can I say? Matt Moore was pitching as a number one pitcher for a playoff team in October that year for the Rays as a rookie, and Mike Trout was struggling to hit balls out in BP in the fall league. That's what I saw, and that affected how I evaluated those two players. And I learned over the years at B.A., Every time I trusted my eyes too much, and not the information enough, uh, it burned me, and usually trusting- now I have to trust my eyes, but I trust the information that is also there with me. Uh, I trust the video to supplement my looks, and uh, I've hopefully learned over the years uh, how to do it better, but uh, yeah, this has been a walk down crap memory lane, David. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
5: yeah hey, I, I I brought up some high points John
4: <laughs> you did you did I'm trying to think of which I would say my better one is. besides vlad that was a that was an obvious one. I'm trying to no. think of another one that I got right, but uh I'm sure there are but they're not coming to mind. That's probably a good thing to uh again try to keep me humble and try to keep me focused on doing my job better. I know there are some calls that I've made with the twins that I'm very proud of, and um happy to have helped acquire a couple of players in our 40-man roster, and I hope to be able to continue doing that. And, uh, you know, in this job, all I really want to do is – the biggest difference between this job and the other one is fewer people read my reports, and there's a payoff of – I just can't even imagine what it would be like to be part of an organization that wins, and that wins uh, championships, you know, not – you know, we've won. We've won a couple of divisions since I've been here. You know, we have – I'm proud of our organization. I'm I, proud of our processes. I think we're always trying to get better. And I'm happy to be part of that. But I really want to be part of a Twins team that ends our playoff drought and that wins. And I just can't imagine what that would be like. And I would like to find out. And I don't think you, you know you can't do that working at Baseball America or Fangraphs or wherever else. There's always another deadline. There's always another magazine. There's always another day to you know put the website up, that kind of stuff. So I would look forward to that kind of payoff. That would be, I would think, a lot of fun.
5: That would certainly be great, John. And it was certainly great to have you on as a guest for Prospects Week. So, you know, thank you very much for all the time you spent with us.
4: It's my pleasure. And it was, uh, as you can tell, very little effort for me to talk. <laughs> I like I like doing that. That's one thing I miss about the old gig. But yeah, I'm looking at, I'm trying to find somebody I got right. I'm sure there's somebody, but uh, it's not coming to mind right now. <laughs>
5: No, you you wouldn't have your current job if you didn't get a lot right, John. So so thanks again, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to John Manuel for joining us, and for Eric and Tess for taking the time during an exhausting week. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. Recommendations help us out. After you've perused the Fangraphs shop and looked at some merch and considered an ad-free membership, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the cool stuff we have going on at the website, free to your inbox. And if you're heading to a ballpark soon, don't forget the Fangraphs app, free on the Apple Store and Google Play. I highly recommend it. That should do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.